Hello, everybody, and welcome to this exciting episode of my podcast where I'm talking with my friend Shira Darone, who is an infectious disease specialist. She is the hospital epidemiologist at the Tufts Medical Center, and she's a nationally recognized expert in infection control and basically became a celebrity during the pandemic because she cut through a lot of the noise and fear-based narratives around the pandemic and COVID. So today we're gonna to talk about what's burning on everybody's minds. How worried should we, be, should we be about COVID? How worried should we be about flu, RSV? What's the deal with hospitalizations ticking up? What's the deal with long COVID? So Shira, thanks for joining me. I'm so happy you're here. So great to be with you. Okay, let's talk about what the national news is spouting out. What's happening What's the national sort of landscape around COVID? So we are well and good into a respiratory virus season, and that now includes COVID-19. It is one of many respiratory viruses that are in, in higher prevalence during the winter. And so what we see is we have more cases of COVID than we did a couple months ago. Our wastewater is the best measure of how much COVID is out there, and the wastewater has been higher. Um, it's nowhere near how high it got in that Omicron wave that we saw a couple years ago that was just massive. It's nowhere near there, but it's high. And it's so fascinating because it's starting to plummet this week in January, as it did this very week in January last year and the year before. And I think that's kind of coincidental. But, you know, I think we're starting to settle into this sort of seasonal pattern. That doesn't mean we only see waves in the winter, but we have seen a wave every winter. And I believe we're past that. And the good news is that even though the wastewater got really high this winter, the hospitalizations and the deaths are less than last winter and the winter before. And so what I understand is that the current variant that is circulating, um, that, is, that is responsible for the majority of cases of COVID, is still a descendant of the Omicron variant, the one that came out right around, remember it was Thanksgiving time, 2022. Thanksgiving 2021 going into the, going into the 2022 new sorry, year. Sorry, 21, it was 21, exactly. But the current circulating variant, while it is, it, it's, it's a descendant of that variant, it's not that different. I mean, is that right? Right. I mean, you know, we, we, we will constantly be hearing about the emergence of new variants with lots of mutations that bear watching because, you know, we want to know, is it going to be more severe? Is it going to be more immune evasive? Is it going to be more contagious? Um, but what we see every time a new variant emerges and becomes dominant in the landscape is we see somewhat of a wave. But what we also see is because they're all descendants of Omicron so far, is that the population's pre-existing immunity of which we have so much now does protect us from these big waves of hospitalization and death like we had seen before. Right, so my understanding and what I tell my patients is that the combination of vaccine-induced immunity plus immunity from having had COVID itself somewhat insulates the population and individuals from the severe COVID outcomes, meaning the vaccine right now doesn't protect you against infection. In fact, that ship sailed back in the Delta variant era of, I believe that was like spring 2021, right? And so you can have 20 shots, you can have 30 shots, please don't get 30 shots of COVID, COVID shots and still get COVID. So that's not the goal of the vaccine anymore. The goal of the vaccine, 
I believe, is to prevent hospitalizations in people who were at risk for hospitalizations in the first place, which is not everybody, which is why if you're not at high risk for hospitalization because you're young and healthy, maybe had COVID, maybe had a couple shots, then you don't necessarily need another COVID shot. Is that the way you'd frame it? Right. I mean, there's so much misunderstanding on both sides of this issue, because it is true that when the vaccines first came out, they were 95% effective against symptomatic COVID. And then we did studies looking at were they actually effective against asymptomatic COVID? They were. They were 90% effective against asymptomatic they COVID. They were sterilizing, practically. And, th and that's why mandates happened. And that's why vaccine passports happened because they really did protect against getting the infection. But then we saw this rapid fire emergence of variants beginning with Delta and then Omicron and then all the subvariants of Omicron. And so what we see since that time is that we, we don't get that much bang for the buck out of the vaccine in terms of preventing infection. Um, if you've never had COVID before though, you get a lot of protection against severe disease, hospitalization and death. Um, you're, we're getting diminishing returns though because nearly everyone has had COVID and that history of COVID also protects you against severe disease, hospitalization and death. And so different countries have taken widely different approaches to their recommendations around these annually updated vaccines. Now, the currently available vaccine is based on the XBB subvariant of Omicron. There's no more XBB. Um, so you're, you're, you know, you're unable to protect yourself from the newest variants that are uh, circulating right now. It is most important the higher risk you are. So I, I do highly recommend the updated annual vaccine for people who are over 65, who have multiple me medical problems, who are pregnant. Um, but otherwise, I say it's, you know, it's your choice because it is very safe. Um, I, you know, I do want to reinforce that. I don't discourage anyone from getting it. The only people I discourage from getting it is I really do think you need to wait at least three months and preferably more like six if you've had recent COVID infection. So you can really get the, the, the best uh, immunity from that infection and not interfere with the maturation of that immunity. That's interesting. So I think the CDC guidelines say two months after your last COVID infection or last booster, um, you can get another one. But what you're saying is that for the immune system to appropriately kind of regulate itself and produce the most robust um, memory, you need to wait at least, or ideally you'd wait six months after your last COVID infection before you get a booster. We see this continued maturation over the course of six months. Now you do have to balance that against the ever-changing variants. How close is the vaccine to the currently circulating variant? How high risk you are? And so that's why I say, you know, three to six months is a good kind of way to think about it if you're going to get an annual update at all. Um, because again, it, it is it is not clear that it benefits you all that much if you don't have underlying medical problems. Okay, so let's talk about testing. As you know, I'm seeing in my practice and we're seeing nationally, um, people coming in with lots of influenza-like illnesses. So ILI is influenza-like illness. So that is, we use that term because influenza, COVID, RSV, para-influenza, metanumovirus. I saw a patient with metanumovirus last week. These viruses that are circulating widely right now look like each other in many ways. It's really difficult to distinguish what's COVID from flu, et cetera. So testing, let's talk about the testing landscape. There are PCR tests, there are rapid home tests. 
um, what I'm telling patients, and I'm interested in your thoughts, is that the rapid antigen tests, those home tests, are essentially contagiousness tests. So if you test negative, it doesn't mean you don't have COVID, and, and they're only for COVID. They're not for any other bug. You, you, you don't have contagious levels of virus in your nose, that is, but it doesn't mean you don't have COVID. In other words, to make a true diagnosis, you would need a PCR test to distinguish from between these different viruses. Whether or not you need that at all, I welcome your thoughts. When to get tested, when to just stay home and you know watch Netflix and take Advil and hydrate. Yeah, before COVID came to town, you know, one of my mantras was don't do a test if it's not going to change the management of the patient. Um, and diagnostic stewardship is a big focus of mine in the hospital, making sure that people do tests at the right time on the right patient so that you don't end up with false positives or chasing down something that you don't actually have to do anything about or treating something that isn't treatable. Um, COVID really changed that landscape because of the isolation requirement. So especially because the CDC still recommends five days of isolation at home if you have COVID and another five days of wearing a mask. That's why health authorities still recommend that you test for COVID even if you have mild symptoms. Now, when that isolation requirement goes away, which it has in many countries and the single state of Oregon, uh, then that's really going to change the recommendation around testing because then testing is only only becomes important for people who would otherwise qualify for antiviral therapy, which is high risk people. Um, and then testing is really important for those people because those antivirals have only been shown to really be effective if they're given within five days of symptoms. Now we have a problem, which is that our home tests increasingly are taking until day two, three, even four to turn positive once your symptoms begin. That's not a change in the accuracy of the test. It's not because the new variants make the tests ineffective. It's actually, a, again, a function of widespread population immunity, people, people's immune system is controlling the virus, which is of course a good thing, and making it so there's not a lot of virus in your nose to detect. Um, and so in many countries, they're really not recommending testing as much because by the time you test positive, you're already on your way to feeling better. Um, and so I think we are going to see a shift in those recommendations around isolation and therefore those recommendations around testing. And that also goes along with the fact that, you know, tests are, are not free anymore. Um, and, and so people are, um, you know, having to pay out of pocket, and it, it's, it's really starting to be unfair that, the, that there's a requirement for people to test for any mild symptom when the government isn't providing those tests necessarily for free all the time, although there was another round of free tests that came available in November. So right now, I tell people, look, according to the rules, um, you should test even at mild symptoms. Know that you won't be, you may not turn positive until day four. Now, like you said, if your test is negative and you do have COVID, um, it probably means that your immune system is controlling that virus and you're not very contagious, although that could change at any point during the day. So that's sure. not a license to go out and hang out with grandma while your nose is running and you're coughing. So, you know, we, we do need to think about um, COVID in the context of all the other respiratory viruses, because even if you don't have COVID, you may have something that is also contagious to grandma and also could land grandma in the hospital. Um, so... Is it a test of contagiousness? 
to some extent, yes, and to some extent, no. We also see that people stay positive. Some people stay positive on those home tests for a very long time. And yet the data show that contagiousness probably does not last beyond day 10 and really starts to go down after day five. Yeah, those are the tricky cases because when someone's feeling completely well, they're not feverish, their sniffles are much better, they're not coughing, they are ready to go back to work and they're still testing positive on the rapid antigen test, that kind of breaks the rule of it being a contagiousness test in the sense that common sense sometimes needs to prevail. Um, in, in, and, I, and I hope that we can go back to a time and place where the be we, we realize that the best way to protect people from infected diseases, respiratory diseases like, like flu and COVID, is to stay home when you're sick. So when you're actively symptomatic, you're coughing and sneezing and you can see all those particles in the air, um, you know, droplet, large droplets, it probably means you're contagious. And when you're five days out and you're feeling better, um, it stands to reason that you're no longer as contagious. So let's talk about masks. So you and I both know that masks became a political lightning rod during the pandemic, you know, un unnecessarily, right? Because masks are masks. They're not a political signal, uh, but somehow they became this charged phenomenon. Um, what I tell my patients is that masking can help protect the wearer. Um, so if you want a mask, by all means mask. If you're actively sick with COVID or flu and you want to help protect somebody in your home, in your closed space, um, and you need to go say, check on your kid because you're a parent and you have COVID and you don't want them to get sick, it might help, but we can't rely on masks to control infections. We have to rely on human behavior to stay isolated if possible. Um, what are you telling people about masks and what do you think about some states and some hospital systems, including Hopkins last week, bringing back mask mandates when the data are clear that mandates did not work? Mandates did not work. Yeah, you know, when mask mandates began to be implemented at the community level, the rhetoric was, um, you know, there was a level of confidence associated with the statements around mask efficacy that was not consistent with the evidence. Um, mask mandates at a community level have never been shown to work, and they still haven't been shown to work. Um, and we have uh, we have good good data to show that uh, communities that had them did not have less COVID than communities that didn't have those mandates. Um, healthcare workers, though, have used high quality surgical uh, masks and uh, N95s um, when taking care of patients with contagious illness forever um, with very good effect. Um, so when worn in the right way. Um, in the right settings, uh, proper donning, proper doffing, uh, single use, right in the trash when you're done. When you do all of those things, they're a very good tool. Um, and uh, I, I think that you know this mantra developed early in the pandemic that my mask protects you and your mask protects me, that was born of the fact that we were making them out of bandanas, that the confidence that they would work was extremely low, but maybe they would do something if everybody did it together and we got into this mindset that I wasn't going to be protected unless you wore the mask and that was a very damaging mindset um, because now we were relying on somebody else instead of relying on yourself and creating anger um, 
a high quality, well-fitting mask will protect you. It won't protect you perfectly. Um, acquiring respiratory viruses is inevitable. Everybody will do so every couple of years throughout their lifetime if they interact with other humans, which is an extremely important thing to do. Um, and so I do tell people that if they are high risk or risk averse, that they can postpone the acquisition of a respiratory virus by wearing a high quality well-fitting mask. But the high risk situations where people, um, you know, wh where people often get uh, acquire a respiratory virus, catch a respiratory virus, are often just the very situations where you're not going to be wearing the mask. You are not likely to be catching COVID-19 in the grocery store with the high ceilings and, and you know, keeping your distance from others because they're strangers. The places you're likely to acquire a respiratory infection are unfortunately your family gatherings or, you know, your own home, even with your household members. Um, because they're going out and interacting in the world and you're not wearing masks with them, which is what makes respiratory viruses inevitable. Um, so yes, healthcare systems are re-implementing mask mandates, uh, many of them this time around just for that direct patient care. Um, so not in the hallways, not at the nurses' stations. Uh, that is at least a much more logical way to do it. Um, to a large extent, that's to make the patients um, feel more comfortable during this time of high respiratory viruses. Uh, and I very much anticipate that all those health systems that have re-implemented those mask mandates um, as has mine during the current respiratory virus season, um, that that will um, be de-implemented as the the way that this this respiratory virus season, the flu and COVID waves um, recede. The the RSV wave, thankfully, is already um, well on its way out. I love it. Okay, so let's talk quickly about Paxlovid, and then I want to ask you about long COVID. Okay, so Paxlovid is this antiviral that is 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 a, a, a medication that gets in the replication cycle of the virus to help tamp down the viral load. And a lot of patients want it. Um, and, you know, as with everything in medicine, there are, there, are, there are benefits and there are risks. And the patient for whom I prescribe Paxlovid is hopefully the patient who's going to benefit more than is going to have downsides. And those patients are typically my higher risk patients. Um, I really don't have any patients who have been unvaccinated and have never had COVID. That's sort of like hard to find those people anymore. Um, and I'm finding that uh, people tolerate it okay, but there are drug-drug interactions. People have to stop taking their statins. Um, it can interfere with blood thinning medications. Um, and I'm not seeing that it's like a panacea like it used to be. It wasn't a panacea ever, but it, you know, t talk me through your take on Paxlovid in 2024, January. Paxlovid was shown to be extremely effective in the clinical tri clinical trials in which um, you know it was conducted on uh, used on unvaccinated people with risk factors, um, and so it's really hard to know in this day and age who actually would stand to benefit from Paxlovid. It certainly should be limited to people with at least some risk factors, um, but again, virtually everybody now has immunity, and that's not the population in which it was studied. And when it was studied in lower-risk people, there, there was no effect. So, you know, it should be limited to those who stand to benefit the most. But, you know, similar to our conversation about the vaccine, as long as you don't have a serious drug-drug interaction, it has been extremely safe. So, you know, I, I, I certainly wouldn't... Um, refuse to give it to somebody who has at least some risk factors. 
I wish that somebody would put out a, a better list than what we currently have to go by, which is the CDC's list of every risk factor that exists, and not all risk factors are created equal. So the right. CDC lists things like anxiety uh, and ADHD and sedentary lifestyle, um, and I, I wouldn't consider those risk factors that warrant the use of Paxlovid today in this day and age in an immune person. Um, but again, things like being over 65, immunocompromised conditions, significant heart and lung disease, uh, for sure. Um, because then, there, I think that the benefits would outweigh the risk, even though I don't have all of the data that I would like to have to answer that question. Yeah, what's interesting always is when, when we end up talking about the vaccine or Paxlovid or therapeutics, you know, and we're talking about not recommending or at least recommend, you know, recommending against or just not recommending, say, another shot or Paxlovid. It's not to be confused with being blasé about the virus or thinking that the patient doesn't deserve to feel better or faster. I think that that's often what's interpreted in the general population and sometimes from even my own patients, they say, well, like, why not? And, and, the, and the book I'd love to write someday, Shira, would be just because we can doesn't mean we should. Meaning we often underestimate the harms of interventions and we often overestimate their benefits. And so people think that just because we have these shots, you know, sitting on, you know, refrigerator shelves and we have these Paxlovid um, packages that we should dispense them. But every intervention has potential harm. And sometimes restraint is the best medicine. But it's hard to practice restraint in a more is more kind of medical landscape. It's hard to practice restraint when it's not clear where the facts are, and it's not clear who to trust with the facts. So again, it's not none of this conversation is to dismiss the import of COVID or the, the you know, the, the massive loss of life and loss of, um, you know, wellness because of COVID. We are both big vaccine proponents, but when it's appropriate, you know, I could prescribe someone 80 milligrams of Lipitor and not 20. I could prescribe them 80 milligrams of Lipitor and not zero. Like I, I could recommend diet and exercise. The way we practice medicine, the way we practice public health is to weigh the benefits and weigh the risks in a population in the case of public health or in an individual in the case of the practice of medicine. And we have to recognize there are harms of interventions and there are benefits of restraint. But that is something that really got lost, I think, during the pandemic and something we need to bring back, make nuance great again. Um, and speaking, and, and speaking of really had refrigerated trucks in the alley for the bodies. I mean, I'm the last person that would be minimizing COVID. Correct. Um, but, but my role, one of my roles in the hospital is called antimicrobial stewardship. And one of my phrases is, you know, don't just do something, stand there. You know, That's sit right. at home because acting is not always in the best interest of the patient. And every single medication has adverse effect, uh, you know, effects associated with it. You know, people say, well, why don't I just give them that antibiotic just to be safe? And we need for people to understand. And the same is true for antivirals, as in this case, antifungals, antiparasitics. You know, um, we need to, to exercise that restraint and not say, I'm just going to give it just to be safe because the, giving a drug you don't need is never the thing that's safe. Um, and so we, but, but we do need to start getting better data about 
COVID in general, there are so many things, and Paxlovid is one of them, and the vaccine is another one, who really stands to benefit from these things so that we can, with the, with information uh, as our guide, know who uh, to give these things to. And we, we don't have that information right That's now. Right. Not, not perfectly, not the way we'd like it. Okay, let's talk about long COVID, which is, you know, one of those things that has been sort of so mismessaged, in my opinion, and I think you might agree. Um, and I and I understand people's fear of it. I understand people uh, are concerned when they are sick and don't feel well three weeks, four weeks after having COVID, and I feel bad for people who do. Um, but I also think the general, like the, the, the mainstream media has sort of overemphasized or overplayed it as a as a risk, even though of course, long COVID is real. We've always, since the beginning of time, known that certain subset of patients are susceptible to having a long tail of symptoms. And some people, for some people, a viral infection, whether it's flu or COVID, can trip the wire and cause a cascade of you know, autoimmunity and other sort of downstream side effects. Um, but that is very uncommon. So what is your understanding of long COVID right now? What is your understanding of Paxlovid? Um, with respect to preventing long COVID, et cetera. Yeah, it's definitely the, the most poorly understood aspect of COVID-19. And um, I, I think that as the fear of severe disease and death recedes because that's becoming less and less common, um, what's sort of coming to the front is this, this concern about long COVID that I might, I might get a mild case because I'm vaccinated, I've been infected before, I can take Paxlovid, but I still might get long COVID. And like you said, the the media uh, is still looking for things um, to garner clicks, right? And and fear does that. Um, um, Fear-based messaging gets the, gets the reads um, uh, right now in the media. So you will see these headlines that tout these huge percentages. Uh, one in four are going to get long COVID. Um, there are so many problems uh, with the way this is being messaged. So first of all, any, any study that's done on the prevalence of long COVID, by the time the study is done, the number is no longer accurate uh, because the, the, the incidence of long COVID, your risk of long COVID is decreasing over time with increasing population immunity, which we've now spoken about three times. Um, long COVID was much more common in the early days when COVID-19 was being acquired by people with no immunity and when disease was more severe. Long COVID is more common after severe disease than after mild disease. Um, and when we study long COVID and we lump a bunch of things together, which are not the same physiologic phenomenon, we're going to end up with what looks like bigger numbers. Having prolonged loss of smell and taste is a completely different thing than having a prolonged cough, which is a completely different thing than having, you know, some combination of fatigue, uh, you know, anxiety and insomnia. Um, those are probably completely different phenomena. And when you study them in often a way that doesn't use a control group without COVID, um, you're going to also uh, end up with numbers that look higher than they truly are, because some of those things are going to emerge 
in a, a proportion of the population, regardless of whether they had COVID or not. So common things like having fatigue, having insomnia, having depression. Um, and when you do those studies using a control group without COVID, the numbers end up looking a lot smaller. When you do those studies comparing COVID to something to other respiratory viruses like flu, you also see that the numbers are quite similar. Post-viral symptoms, symptoms that last after a viral infection for a number of weeks are very, very common, and we see them after every type of viral infection. You're also going to see very different numbers whether, whether you define long COVID as three weeks, four weeks, or 12 weeks, um, because it's extremely common to cough after any viral infection, to cough for six weeks. It's very common to have prolonged fatigue. Now, it's also been known that after flu or another serious respiratory viral infection, elderly people can have cardiac events. Um, they can have neurolo neurologic decline. Um, they can have blood clotting events. All of those things are not unique to COVID, but we have focused so much on this one virus over the last four years or so uh, that we, we have grown to believe that they are. Um, so I, again, I, if somebody says to me, I'm afraid of long COVID, I want to protect myself, I tell them how to protect themselves. That's vaccination. That's avoiding crowded indoor places, especially when viral levels are high. That's wearing a well-fitting, high-quality mask if they wish to, if they want to make that risk-benefit analysis. Um, but when you're making that risk-benefit analysis, you shouldn't be thinking that one in four people develop long COVID because that would be a very overblown number for this phase that we're in right now of endemic COVID. So incredibly helpful. Okay, let's talk about RSV for a quick minute. RSV is a respiratory virus that generally peaks in the winter time. It's generally the most dangerous for preemies and newborns and elderly people. Um, we have these new vaccines that are FDA approved for people over the age of 60. I, for one, have not been pushing them. I'm not against the vaccine. I just remind patients when they ask me that they probably had RSV a couple times in their life. They just maybe didn't know it. Um, but I do recommend it for my patients with respiratory compromise, with diabetes, um, and anybody who wants it over the age of 60, because I think it's a pretty safe vaccine. I'm just not pushing it. I think that once we get more safety data, and I, I know we have a lot more safety data now than we did when it first came out because it's been administered, um, I'll be much more enthusiastic. But so far, so good, I think, on the safety profile of the RSV shots. Is that right? Well, you know, I haven't seen the safety data. So, you know, I have heard people say, well, many, many shots have been given and we haven't heard anything. So no news is good news, but it's no news, you know, so I, I would, okay, good. the first season, I haven't seen the summary. You, you know, the reason that the CDC did not make a blanket recommendation for all people over 60 was that there were adverse events in the clinical trials. Um, right. There were, you know, several cases of you know, neurologic uh, side effects like Guillain-Barre. Um, and so not knowing how frequent that was going to be in a larger population um, once it was rolled out, they did advise people to talk to their doctor and do a risk-benefit analysis. How, if not everyone over 60 is the same in terms of their risk of severe RSV. Um, and so, uh, you know, I imagine that if the safety data from this first year are very good, then next year there might be a blanket recommendation. Um, uh, but right now it is called shared decision-making recommendation, meaning talk to your doctor and assess your risk. That's exactly what I'm doing. And I was under the impression we were going to get safety data by about now, but I guess not. 
Yeah. Um, okay. I would I would hope that the ACIP would meet again and and you know go through that data publicly so that we all have it. Yep. Okay. Flu shots. How well is the flu shot, the seasonal flu shot for influenza, matching the current circulating strains? And what are you seeing in the hospital? Yeah, um, you know, I'm usually we know really we don't really know until the season's over, and then we look back and we say, you know, how did we do? I, I have heard some good things about its its ability to cover the circulating strains of influenza B, which is what we usually see in the later part of the season, which is where we are now. So um, that's good news. Um, we're seeing flu in the hospital. We're seeing both COVID and flu in the hospital right now. So, um, you know, not in, you know, an overwhelming kind of a way, a very, very normal respiratory virus season, a normal flu season, a little bit um, lower in terms of its peak than last year. Um, Hospitals are always strained at this time of year, and we are under strain with you know people boarding in the ER. Um, so I would say it is not too late to get your flu shot, and I do recommend that everybody over the age of six months get an annual flu shot. I think it's a great recommendation. I mean, we'll see flu into April and May sometimes, and you can see a scattered flu case, you know, in July even. I mean, it's it's just peak right now. Right, and sometimes um, two, sometimes two peaks. So sometimes yeah. even when you're on, when it looks like you're on the other side of the peak, you might get a second one. So again, um, not too late if you haven't gotten your flu shot. So great. Oh, okay, Shira, this is incredibly helpful. There's so many juicy takeaways, and I think at the end of the day, if I'm not mistaken, my takeaway from this is that yes, it's it's winter. Yes, it's virus season, but we have incredible tools to prevent and treat when necessary um, a lot of these viruses and that we have to remember that the fear-based headlines um, do generate clicks and likes, and that's why they exist. It's not to say that we should dismiss the importance of these viruses. It's not to say that people don't die every year and continue to die from COVID and flu. It's just that we typically know who those patients are, and those are the patients for whom we have these shots and Paxlovid, therapeutics, Tamiflu, et cetera. Um, and that's why we have hospitals, because you know we can't, unfortunately, take the risk down to zero. We can just calibrate our level of anxiety to our actual risk, and that is unique to the individual. And something you often say, Lucy, is that if you optimize your underlying health, when you get yes. that inevitable respiratory virus, you're going to weather it better, right? Well, if you it. make sure that you are sleeping and eating good food and managing your stress and managing your chronic medical problems, right? Hypertension, your diabetes, you are going to do better when you, because it's not if, it's when you get one of those respiratory right. viruses. And one of the ways we want to manage your underlying health is by not scrolling through fear-based headlines, keeping you up at night and panicking about a virus that, that for most people is not going to take them to the hospital, particularly if they've been vaccinated and um, if they're taking care of their underlying health. And if you do, that's why I exist. That's why your doctor exists. That's why Shira exists. That's why we exist in the world is to help you when you're, when you're, when you need it. Um, Shira, I'm going to let you go. Thank you so much for joining me and I'll talk to you soon. Bye. Okay. So don't leave.